from the authors of Author Masterminds. This is Mysterious. Mystery surrounds us every day. Join us and listen to true stories of mystery, from human behavior to nature and the physical environment to paranormal experiences. The stories are true, even if we can't explain them. On June 22, 2006, Juanita Richardson fell to her death. The investigation of her death and the subsequent trial and conviction of her husband, Thomas Richardson, was not ordinary. Hello, my name is Valerie Winans, a writer for readers of all ages. I have an appreciation for history and for those that preserve it. My first book, Alaska's Savage River, came about as a result of my husband and I working in Denali National Park and Preserve as campground hosts for two years. It tells the history of the campground where we worked and the people that worked there from the beginning of the campground to current times. You can go to my website for more information on my books, ValerieWinans.com. Juanita Richardson died in a national park so beautiful, it is called Pictured Rocks National Lakeshore. She is the only person known to have suffered a fatal fall at Pictured Rocks since it opened in 1972. As the scene was on federal property, there was a question of jurisdiction. Normally, in a federal park, the FBI, along with park personnel, would investigate. But due to the law enforcement jurisdiction that existed in the park when this incident occurred, the federal murder statute did not apply. The county and the state had the primary burden of conducting the investigation and handling the prosecution. But the FBI was initially contacted and continued to assist along with the National Park Service. In the initial stages of the investigation, the National Park Service, the Alger County Sheriff's Department, and the Michigan State Police were skeptical that Juanita's death was accidental or that she committed suicide due to the conflicting accounts Tom Richardson gave concerning the death of his wife. He initially told police he didn't see his wife fall but later said he did, first describing it as a suicide and later as an accident. As the investigation progressed, it revealed an overwhelming amount of circumstantial evidence. The Richardsons lived in McBain, Michigan, a small farming community in the lower peninsula of Michigan. They were on a vacation at the Federal Park near Munising, Michigan, when Juanita fell to her death. Investigators learned that Tom Richardson was a respected member of his church and an active member of a Bible study group. He was a longtime employee of Federal Express and worked hard to provide for his family. 
Juanita worked as a secretary at a local school and was well-liked. She was also a member of the church and sang in the choir. The couple had been married for 23 years. When investigators questioned the Richardson's neighbors, however, they described a man who verbally abused his wife and that he'd also related to others that he was unhappy in his marriage. They said the couple had recently been arguing and that Juanita planned to file for a divorce. Before leaving for their trip to the Upper Peninsula, Tom insisted that they get a will, so Juanita made an appointment with a local lawyer on a weekend to set up a will. When the lawyer explained that there was no urgent need for a will as all of their property was considered joint under Michigan law, Tom lost all interest in having the will drafted before they left on vacation. The police learned that Tom Richardson made numerous phone calls before Juanita's death to a woman who worked in a store on the route Tom used in his job. Tom even had a lengthy conversation with her the night before Juanita died. Interviews with Kelly Brophy revealed she shared the same beliefs as Tom Richardson and that they mostly talked about their shared Christian faith. She told him she would never have a relationship with a married man or even a divorced man, but she would have a relationship with a widowed man. She insisted to the police that she was not in a relationship with Tom Richardson, but that they were just friends. Tom had told her that his wife had cancer and would be dead by Christmas. Juanita did not have cancer, but she was dead by Christmas. The day after Juanita's funeral, he visited Kelly and brought her a plant from the funeral. He told Kelly he would take care of her. As the investigation progressed, it came to light that Tom Richardson was seeing another woman at the same time. Tammy Sian related that she and Tom Richardson became involved in August 2006, two months after his wife's death. As the facts mounted, the authorities became more suspicious that Tom Richardson had something to do with the death of his wife. When one of the neighbors, who was convinced of the guilt of Tom Richardson, contacted the state police, they learned that Tom had asked the neighbor to fix him up with the woman. Since Tom requested it, the police provided the woman, an undercover state trooper. The neighbor arranged a dinner with himself, his wife, the undercover officer, and Tom Richardson. They introduced her to Tom, saying that he had recently lost his wife and left it at that. Tom liked her very much right away. He attempted familiarity with her at the dinner and even reached over and ate off of her plate. During that original meeting, he told her that he had a very beautiful home. He had a big boat. And wouldn't she like to come stay with him? No, but they did exchange contact information. Placing an undercover officer on a murder investigation is unusual. 
Before the dinner meeting, the officer was given a new identity. The police had confiscated Tom's computers and knew that he'd been doing searches on women. The officer had a fabricated name, a false employer, and an address in Utica, Michigan. Tom started calling her at night while he was driving truck for Federal Express. Tom had already been given his Miranda rights and asked for a lawyer, so the officer did not ask him any questions. Her job was to listen. She was concurrently doing her regular undercover duties, so by talking to Tom Richardson at night for hours, she was working around the clock. She suggested to Tom that there was a possibility that the police were listening to his phone calls, and so they decided to write letters instead. The postmaster in Utica would send her the letters sent by Tom Richardson to the Utica address, and then she would send the postmaster a letter that he mailed to Tom with a Utica postmark. The letters didn't reveal much, but were a way to keep communication open. To meet in person, she would let him know she was on her way north to visit family and then set up a meeting conveniently an hour before he had to leave for work and they would then be able to keep the meeting short and on state police terms. The letters and meetings went on until after Thanksgiving. Then the day came when he spotted her in the Meyer store in Cadillac where she lived. She was able to ditch him, but then shortly after that, the tracker on his vehicle indicated he was parked for long periods at the end of her street. The state police thought he may have followed her home and knew where she lived. That was cause for definite concern, but then they learned he was actually at a nearby dealership trying to trade his vehicle in. The undercover officer asked her supervisors if they could come up with a list of topics that she could prompt him to talk about. She wanted to meet him one last time, let him talk, and then be done. Since questions were not allowed, she printed an article from a newspaper regarding his wife's death and handed it to him. She said a friend had given it to her. That got him talking about what had happened. The officer would occasionally make a statement, and that would prompt him to talk some more. He talked about what happened that day, and they taped this conversation as all others had been taped. This was his story. It was not coerced. The police had a lot of circumstantial evidence against Tom Richardson and were finally ready to arrest him. The undercover officer was a part of the arrest team. They arrested him at the end of his shift at Federal Express. She was in her official state police uniform, and as the other officer was putting the handcuffs on Tom, she said, Hi, Tom. How are you doing? At the sound of her voice, he immediately recognized her, and all of the color left his face. He did not say a word. She put him in the patrol car and read him his Miranda rights, and again, he made no statement. Let's take a short break. This episode of Mysterious is brought to you by Readers and Writers Book Club. It's an online book club with lots of benefits. You don't have to get in your car to drive anywhere or bake the cookies you need to host the club at home. You can come in your pajamas 
and get great deals on books, meet the authors, and be part of activities such as the Three Amigos, who meet once a month with a new writing conundrum to solve. Go to readersandwritersbookclub.com and join the fun. Please see the show notes for more information. Alger County Prosecutor Karen Barman was the lead prosecutor. She was convinced he was guilty and was willing to work hard to make the case for his guilt. It was a lot of work. Later, she would say it took two years of her life. The venue of the trial changed to Schoolcraft County. One reason was that the Alger County courtroom was not big enough. Tom's Richardson's defense was that Juanita's death was accidental. He said he gave three different stories because he was in shock. He loved his wife and was devastated by her death. He said that he may have also given different accounts of Juanita's death due to a former head injury that affected his memory. He also said that the police put words in his mouth. He felt pressured to say what they wanted to hear. The prosecutor had to prove that Tom's version was not the true one. And to do that, she knew the jury must be able to understand the process of weighing evidence. Tom complained that the case against him was purely circumstantial, which it was. And Karen Barman had to make clear to the jury that circumstantial evidence is entitled to the same weight as direct evidence. And circumstantial evidence also is sufficient to sustain a conviction. She made the familiar comparison of being able to determine that it is raining outside by seeing the circumstantial evidence of someone come in from outside wearing a raincoat covered in droplets of water. She then went on to make the comparison of knowing that the World Trade Center had been intentionally attacked through the circumstantial evidence of seeing the second plane hit. Circumstantial evidence plays a hidden role in our lives. We use it daily. The prosecutor also schooled the jury when she used as an example a case in which a husband shot his wife and made it look like a hunting accident. She also referenced Scott Peterson, who killed his pregnant wife, to make the point that even notorious criminals have people who support them despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary. The defense presented witnesses who were convinced of Tom Richardson's innocence, including his children. Barman, in closing argument, said that Juanita Richardson likely experienced terror and betrayal before her death and insinuated that her children were betraying her by testifying for the defendant and thereby attacked their credibility as witnesses. To convict someone of first-degree murder, Karen Barman had to make sure she could show that the defendant intentionally killed the victim and that the killing was deliberate and premeditated. She believed that the evidence of these factors was overwhelming. Prosecutor Barman was able to show that Tom Richardson's excuse of memory loss due to a workplace injury was not valid. 
she produced witnesses who knew Tom and never observed any evidence of memory loss or even heard him mention it before Juanita died. Then an expert witness stated that, based on her review of the research, in reports of dissociative amnesia, typically, once the memory returns, it is there. The memory is returned. The witness found that it led to a conclusion that telling different stories at different times is a matter of choice, not a matter of memory suddenly disappearing again. The prosecutor presented evidence of Tom Richardson's bad character by presenting witnesses to his verbal abuse of his wife and his pursuit of other women. Before and after Juanita's death, Tom Richardson pursued other women. He sought out Kelly Brophy. He had a relationship with Tammy Sion, tried to seduce a teller at his local bank, and actively pursued the undercover officer. After the initial introduction, they had talked on the phone and had some brief meetings, and then he told the officer that Juanita did not fill his love tank. He was referring to a book popular at the time about how a person's love tank needed to be filled. He said to the officer that if she wanted to fill his love tank, she needed to touch him, hug him, kiss him. She had no intention of filling his love tank. Tom's own words contributed to his conviction. When the tapes and letters from his contacts with the undercover officer were offered at the trial, the jury got a first-hand experience of Tom's storytelling. When the officer testified that the letters and tapes were valid at trial, he refused to look at her. And the jury was able to witness that as well. The jury was not allowed to go to the spot where Juanita fell. If they had gone there, they would see the steep incline to the last place Juanita ever stood. No reasonable person would climb up to that spot. It was not a place to casually step up to and point at the view. It was a place where you wouldn't stand without something sturdy to hold on to. The coroner's report showed a bruise on the back of Juanita's leg that could not be explained by the fall. During deliberation, one of the jury members demonstrated what could have caused the bruise. He had one of the men stand with his back to him, and then he kicked him at the same spot where Juanita had the bruise. It wasn't a hard kick, but it caused his knees to buckle, and he lunged forward. So the jury could easily decide where that bruise came from and how Juanita was helped forward over the cliff. When the jury gave the verdict of guilty, it was an affirmation that the prosecutor had shown that Tom Richardson's lies constituted guilt, that he had a motive to kill his wife for the property they owned together and the life insurance money. He had a girlfriend who would not marry a divorced man, but would marry a widower. He was unhappy in his marriage, and his excuse of a previous head injury was not believable. After conviction, Tom read from a prepared statement 
asking his children to try to reconcile their relationships with Juanita's family. Juanita's family was relieved when he was found guilty. Jeanette Ellens, Juanita's sister, said the family wanted to give Richardson to the state to have them take care of him. Tom appealed the conviction with a list of offenses by the prosecution and ineffectiveness of his lawyers. An appellate court gave Karen Barman a slap on the wrist when they stated that an overabundance of evidence of guilt does not grant a license to be flippant, but also stated that Tom Richardson received a fair trial. This is more than a story about a man who killed his wife. It's a mystery why two extraordinary women took extreme chances to ensure that the truth would be known. The undercover officer involved herself with a man who she was pretty sure had just murdered his wife. While in jail, Tom Richardson said to another prisoner that he wanted to kill that woman, meaning Karen Barman. These courageous women stepped forward, putting their own lives on the line to be sure justice was done. They acted as true professionals, doing their jobs, serving their constituents. I hope you enjoyed this true life mystery and will join us again for the next episode of Mysterious.